Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, we wanted to let you know that we have just eight tickets left for our upcoming Art of Loving men's retreat. It's happening in September. And it's the first time we've ever had a men's retreat, but we're finishing up the planning of it and it's really going to be amazing. So uh, to just sell these last few seats because we don't want them to go to waste, we are giving a special promotion of $100 off any retreat ticket. So if you put in the coupon code JFF100, then you'll get $100 off the retreat if you are purchasing now. Okay, hope to see you there. The following podcast episode is a recording of a talk I gave at a recent women's conference. My schedule doesn't typically allow for me to do church events like this, but this was an exception because it was an invitation from someone who matters a lot to me, and so I had to say yes. (laughs) So the focus of my talk was on how we can use conflict and differences of opinion to create more honest unity and become wiser and more understanding in the process. And so I hope you'll enjoy listening to my remarks. Welcome everyone. I'm glad to be here. Um, Collected a lot of questions from many of you um, and um, sent them to me. And so I read through them And in looking through a lot of the questions that were submitted, um, if I had to choose one salient theme, it was around the question of how to build bridges um, and stay true to oneself in the face of very challenging divisions that are happening in our families, in our marriages, and in our church community. These are some of the questions that came in. How do you reconnect with children that have strayed, especially after they've left the home? How can we learn to respond? This is another question. How can we learn to respond and help individuals or groups feel loved when someone's actions don't fit with our belief system? Another question. The recent political and pandemic divisions have cut through the heart of every familial and social group I have. I've never felt such polarization in my life. Any tips for reestablishing connection amidst people of differing viewpoints These didn't used to seem so extreme and so divisive. Another person asked, how do you work through the conflict of telling someone, quote, no, that doesn't work for me in an attempt to stand up for yourself while not offending? Issues that aren't life or death, but a matter of opinion and more than one way to do things. How not to offend while also stating your own opinion, how to be an advocate for yourself instead of staying quiet but after holding something in, you may feel like you want to explode. And then another one, advice for living in a climate where it can feel increasingly like your values are not reflected in your church community, right? So these are really real and challenging questions and they show that we're living through a very difficult moment culturally and within the church. It's stretching us all to find our footing and to stay meaningfully connected with one another. 
I think human beings have always struggled to manage a human tension that is within all of us. And if you've listened to me in other contexts, you've heard me talk about this, but this is that we all desire two things that often are challenging to reconcile. The first is that we wanna to belong to one another, right? We are born to attach. We're born to be in connection with one another and we are all seeking for that sense of belonging that we belong to our marriage partner if we're married, that we belong to our family, not just belong, but that we are valued, that we're seen as important within it, that we belong to our ward, that we feel that we matter there, that who we are, that there's space for who we are. So we very much want that sense of connection. And if we don't have it, we can't thrive, right? It's so fundamental to our humanity. But we also want to belong to ourselves, right? So not, we don't just wanna be in connection with one another. We also want to belong to or be true to the best in ourselves. We wanna be true to our own beliefs and ideas, excuse me, ideas and goals and ambitions. And we don't wanna kind of give up fundamentally who we are in order to belong. Both of these things really matter. The happiest marriages, right? People are able to achieve both things. The sense of really belonging to one another and also being able to be true to our individuality, right? That we can be who we are and have a friendship. And so the problem is, is that these two things often come into conflict, right? When you're in a family, and you're at Thanksgiving dinner and there's political strong feelings happening right at the table in different directions, right? This, this sense that you can belong to your own ideas and your own beliefs and to one another gets deeply challenged, right? And so it can be really hard to handle these tensions in marriage, for example. This is so much the work I do is that a lot of times in our attempts to reconcile this tension, we'll kind of fold on who they are in order to belong, right? We'll kind of put away their feelings, put away their beliefs, their desires in order to keep peace in the family. Or others of us will value our independence and autonomy so much that we will trample our relationships, right? Or that we'll kind of take what we believe and think to be so important that we'll compromise a sense of belonging in order to belong to our individuality. And these are not easy tensions to reconcile. In fact, the way that I think and teach and, and have experienced in my life is that when we're more immature in our development, what I mean is when we're younger in our development relationally and spiritually, it feels like these two are in contradiction to one another, that they fight against one another. I can either, you know, belong to you and keep you happy with me, or I can belong to myself. But I don't know how to be true to me and you, right? And so a lot of times with the way that we handle that fundamental tension is through some kind of hostility or reducing one another in some way 
right? To manage our own ego needs, to manage our view of reality, our view of ourselves, our view of our faith, that we will do exactly what Christ taught us over and over and over and over again not to do is that we will reduce one another to, to, to something crazy, to something lesser, to something that we can easily dismiss because it makes it easier for us to kind of hold on to our own view when we do that. I'm not gonna talk about this as much tonight, but another thing we can do is kind of capitulate our view, not have a view, just be what everybody else wants to, to keep everyone happy, right? And that's also a problem. And so um, when we make ourselves irrelevant, when we participate in our view disappearing, right? But it's an easy thing to do one or the other of those two things because it's so hard to know how else to manage that fundamental tension. So, um, okay, so, but in our larger cultural reality right now, we're, we have a horrible um, reality going on that we reduce the people that are different from us to identities and stereotypes and others, you know, people that we can make as wicked and we're righteous, right? Make as different than us. And this is a strategy that's really instinctive to uh, for us, right? Even babies do this. If you wanna watch a really interesting study, Google um, baby bigots 60 minutes, okay? <laughs> but it's this great research that was done on how babies what if they would have two teddy bears and they would have four month old babies and these four month old babies, when they would see a teddy bear be kind to another teddy bear, share something, the baby would prefer the kind teddy bear, right? So that is, we are drawn to the fact that of compassion in one another and kindness in one another. But if the baby had a preference for Cheerios over Fruit Loops, for example, the bear that liked Fruit Loops the baby would like the bear that would harm the bear who liked fruit loops. Okay, does that make sense? So the baby was not only looking for the bears that also liked Cheerios, they even liked the bears that would harm the bear that preferred fruit loops. Okay, do you see that? So we have a very tribal instinct in us. We talk about natural man. We have this very primitive desire to kind of create boundaries around people that are just like us. And the internet makes that very, very possible to do, is to go find the people that are just like you. Wards actually work, in, well, at least in my ward, we have people from varying socioeconomic um, positions, varying educational positions, varying political positions, and put us all together. It's maybe a little easier to do when you live outside of Utah, but, that, but so that drives, you to kind of understand one another and to work together. What's very easy to do in our current information environment is to only find the views that reinforce, I'm not gonna talk about this, I, I'll get beyond this in a second, but, but just to understand the landscape of the meaning landscape that's going on that we are struggling within is it's very easy to find reinforcement for our limited views online, in the news that we get offered the news that already reinforces our point of view because these entities make more money when we do that. And it drives our stupidity. <laughs> okay, I say that affectionately. And our division. It drives us into us-them thinking that's very bad for all of us. 
right? We get taken advantage in these information realities. So I think this vilification of those that are different than us is actually quite evil, right, to do that. And it's something that politicians and news organizations can actually benefit from exploiting in us. That, that is a human tendency in us. And when they can exploit it and drive our loyalty to people that are just like us, it's actually evil. It's, it's really what creates a, the breakup and of peace in society, in families, in marriages. This is what the work I'm doing all the time in marriages is how people get entrenched into their own blindness and vilify the other person. And it makes it impossible for them to solve their problems because they're so busy reinforcing the reality they already know, the point of view they already have, and they use the limitations of the other person, the other people or groups to basically drive reinforcement of their current view. And this makes it impossible to solve problems. It makes it impossible to achieve Zion. It makes it impossible for us to become wiser because our natural man instincts are hijacking our brains and draining our courage and draining our intelligence with it. We don't have to agree with what someone thinks necessarily, right? You don't have to necessarily have the same position as someone that's different than you. That's not the goal. But we do have to be really careful not to reduce those who think differently um, than we do, to not make them less than us. And this can be difficult for many reasons. If this were more of a classroom setting, I'd have you talk to me about why this is so challenging to understand the people around us that are different than us, right? It's not, you know, it's not that, what I'm gonna to talk to you about tonight is actually a very simple idea but very, very difficult to do. Okay, so I, sometimes ideas are threatening. Okay, sometimes ideas are in fact evil and dangerous, but oftentimes our difficulty with understanding those who are different than us is that it just challenges our view of ourselves or our view of reality or our view of where we are within reality. And our minds like reinforcement. Our minds are looking, I was listening to um, doing a CEU class last weekend and was talking about anxiety. And the instructor was talking about the fact that our minds will just go and implant onto reality what we already expect to find there, right? Now that helps us stay organized and helps us not have to relearn reality all the time, but it's also a deep liability if it precludes us from seeing things as they are, right? We don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And we are often imposing our understanding of ourselves and one another on reality to the exclusion of our growth in wisdom and meaningful compassion and meaningful understanding of one another. So, um, my goal tonight is right, not to address the larger social and political realities that are splitting us apart. I'm hoping others will solve some of that, um, but, but, also, but to help us consider what we can do within our families, within our marriages, within our wards, 
to build more bridges and address differences with more equanimity and more wisdom. Christ was very clear that our very natural inclination is to create vertical relationships that are against the gospel. And by vertical relationships, I mean one up, one down relationships. Who's better than whom? Whose ideas count? Whose do not, right? Um, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, for example, they were using faith actually to say they were better than other people. And Christ was very clear that that is not what true faith is. That's, we can't use our beliefs to dismiss others around us or say we're superior to them, right? And this is ungodly to do this. Um, it's, all, it's to see one another and ourselves falsely. The Sadducees and the Pharisees saw other children of God falsely, but importantly saw themselves falsely to put themselves up above or the woman caught in adultery, right? Everyone wants to cast a stone at her. Why, right? Because I think in some ways we want to establish in our own minds that we are different from the sinner. When Christ was telling us over and over again, we are all sinners. We are all limited. We are all living in some falseness and some truth. We're all capable of evil and good, all of us, right? And so, um, it's easy to talk about the wicked as outside of us, but we have to look at the wicked within us, right? That Christ was teaching us not to be deluded into the idea that our self-deluding fantasies of who we are are sufficient, right? He taught us about the beam and the moat, and we are often busy trying to get the moat out of our spouse's eye or our neighbor's eye. Meanwhile, we have a massive beam that's like hitting people as we walk around, okay? And we were, it's a great metaphor because we're literally blind. We literally are blinded by our own self-deluded idea about who we are, that we're in a position to be correcting others, right? And. And, you know, Christ was generous to say other people have moats. I mean, they probably have beams too on some level, right? But the idea is that we are not without sin and we have to look at ourselves and understand the limitations in our view, right? Um, because this keeps us from not just doing divisive and destructive things ourselves in relationships, right? That sort of self-questioning, but also it, it helps us to get wiser, if we can, we can look at our own limited understanding, not only do we become more capable of compassion, uh, but we also become much wiser about what's true. We become more capable of solving problems, right? Einstein said something, well, he's reputed to have said this, I don't know if he actually said this or not, but the basic idea is that we can't solve problems at the level at which a problem was created, right? So if we're in a marriage and we're having an ongoing problem, the only way we're gonna solve it, what people do is they get focused on the other person and then they, they use their limited view of reality to do their limited thing in the marriage, which invites their spouse to do their limited thing and justify it against your limitation and then do it over and over and over. For 50 years, everybody gives them presents at the 50th wedding anniversary, <laughs> but they don't necessarily grow into a more loving couple, 
your ability to grow into a more loving couple is highly related to your ability to wake up to your own participation in the trouble. Now that doesn't necessarily solve the other person or make them wake up to themselves, but it certainly increases the chances because as you bring your level of wisdom and understanding up, not only do you get wiser and more capable of love, but you become more able to solve the problems in your marriage or in your family or in your community, right? So, so how do we bring our level of wisdom up? Okay, again, it's simple, but terrifying. Okay. <laughs> that is seeking first to understand, right? Using Stephen R. Covey's phrase from his seven habits of highly effective people. Seek first to understand, then be understood. I teach this concept a lot. I hate it every time. <laughs> now, why do we hate it so much? Okay, well, again, our brains love equilibrium and we like seeing the world as we know it. And we don't like that being disrupted by, by information that disorganizes our sense of who we are. And so we'll resist it mightily. A lot of times people are coming to me for you know counseling or coaching input on their marriage and i tell them what they're doing and they get really upset with me sometimes right sometimes people are like okay you're right thank you you know <laughs> other times people are like you're going down <laughs> and what the reason is because it's so disorienting you know for example i had a client who would talk about his wife as being manipulative well, the reality was he was deeply manipulative. He grew up in a family where he learned to manipulate. Okay, he didn't like that his family, his parents were manipulative, but he was so immersed in that reality that he couldn't even see how, how difficult he was to live with because he would manipulate all the time. And it was true, there was tons of data for it, but it was so disorienting for him because he'd convinced himself so much that he was unlike his father, right? That to actually see what was right in front of him hurt so much, right? But it was also the path to being free, to growing into a better person, right? When Christ says, that, well, I can't remember if it was Christ saying it or John saying, but, but the truth sets you free, right? We, the part they edited out is the truth makes you miserable, then it sets you free, okay? <laughs> but, you know, and there's research on this too, where they talk about when kids are in moral developmental change, right? They're going from like, you know, they're even like even younger in development and kids are going through these kind of stages of cognitive moral developmental shifts. I won't explain this research right now, but when they're sort of in between and their brain is starting to figure out a higher level of cognitive reasoning, and they're sitting there looking at the puzzle, the child gets visibly upset and agitated because their brain is getting kind of disorganized at the level that it knows reality in order to grow into the container of the mind to expand, to accommodate more reality. And it's always uncomfortable. And so when we resist it, we try to get dismissed data, throw it out, say it's not relevant for me so that we can keep the equilibrium that we know. But when we grow, we allow the information we don't yet understand, we haven't yet mastered to change our minds, literally, to literally expand our capacity for both wisdom and love. 
That's what moral development is. That's what it is to grow, to become more godly and more Christ-like is to literally be able to accommodate more truth and to love others and ourselves and God in the process. But natural man is not about sexuality. Natural man is about their resistance to that process because we love our egos. We love our sense of self as we know it. Uh, even if it's making us miserable, we still know it and we still like to keep it in place to our own detriment and the detriment of our relationships. So seek first to understand them, be understood. Very simple, very hard solution. Listening to one another, which is different than being quiet while your spouse speaks until you can get your view in. Okay. <laughs> I don't mean that. <laughs> when you're like sitting there with like the yeah, but you know, you're like, okay, this is the the humble, and humble is always strong. Humble is not weak, humble is not doormat. Humble is open to what you don't yet understand. Courageous people do that. Strong people do that. Right? Strong people are willing to have their ego be less important than what is true. Okay, that's what humble means. So to humbly really understand another person's point of view, even if it contradicts everything you know, even if it contradicts your political view, your religious views, what is this person's perspective? How do they make sense of the world, right? And it, it doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but before you decide what you think of it, it's best to get in there and actually understand it rather than our impulse to dismiss it or talk over it or explain how they're wrong or explain why we're right or just shut down understanding altogether. Um, so, okay. So why is it so difficult? I think it stretches us. It asks us to consider where we are wrong. It's an investment in another human being. Right. This is what love is, is to really respect that person enough to think about how they honestly came to their point of view. Right. How did they come to the position that they hold, even if it's one that you don't agree with, even if you think they're not making good choices in the face of their conclusion to still understand how does the world make sense for them? I think one of the things that Christ taught over and over again is that the relationship, I taught a lesson on Sunday about um, David and Bathsheba, the story of David and Bathsheba. And I focused more on David and his difficulty with coming to his, I won't, anyway, I won't get into this whole lesson, but basically his ability to kind of try to cover up his sinfulness, hide, mask who he is, and that it took the prophet Nathan to come to him. And prophet Nathan used a very solid therapeutic technique, one that I've used at times, which is you tell a story or you remove it from the person's view of themselves. And so he says, you know, here's this story of this man who goes and kills a you and you know, takes it from a poor person and so on. And David says, the King David says, no, that's terrible. The guy should die, right? He, he sees the morality outside of himself and is clear that that's indecent. And then, of course, the prophet says, you are the man, right? 
and not in a good way. <laughs> uh, and so he, David goes into this self-confrontation. He starts to see the beam in his eye, starts to see where he's wrong. But what I think is really beautiful is that in later scriptures, I think it's in Psalms, where he's talking about his deep desire to, to be good, to be in God's presence again, to be in connection with God again, right? And that for me, there's, a, there's this really clear, like we're all King David, we're all capable of good, we're all capable of evil, and that God values the relationship with us above all else, right? Loving one another is more important than ideology. Love leads you into the richest, truest ideology. Principles are there to help us love, to help us care for one another. But love is our highest aim, our highest commandment. And so we want our faith to facilitate our ability to truly love and know each other. So again, I've always disliked this process. Um, I remember once in, being in conflict with my husband and thinking, okay, I have to do what I tell other people to do. I'm going to seek first to understand, then I'll be understood. I'm just going to understand. And then I can't wait to get to the being understood part <laughs> because I was really confident that I was right. Actually, I really did. I didn't think I was being mean or unreasonable. I just thought that he was, he just misunderstood me. And I just thought he was basing his anger on misunderstanding me. So I sought to understand and I genuinely tried to understand what he was saying. And when he got to the end, I was like, oh crap, he's right. <laughs> I was doing that. I couldn't even see I was doing that and I wasn't being fair. And so I didn't even need to be understood because I already was understood. <laughs> uh, we didn't need my self-delusion to come in there because I, I knew I was off, right? Or uh, one time my son was struggling when he was an adolescent and I wanted him to not be struggling. And I wanted very much to solve it. And so he would tell me, talk to me about where he was having difficulty and I would rush in with the answers. I'm like, people pay me good money for this. And if you just do this, uh, you will be fine. You know? <laughs> and I just kept like, you know, trying to get him to do what I knew would be helpful to him. And one day he said to me, mom, you're a terrible listener. And I'm like, no, I'm a professional listener. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he was right. Okay. I was a terrible listener to him anyway, because I didn't want to understand him. It scared me to understand him. It scared me to see where he was stuck and to not be able to control it away and make it right. It scared me to see his way of understanding himself and the world. And I kept trying to change it into the form that my mind could handle. And so I think the fear is understandable. It's very human, right? But it was a failure of love in those moments, right? It, it was, I wanted control more than I really wanted to know him and to walk in that uncertainty with him. And so in facing that in myself, I got better at listening and I would regulate my anxiety about it while really understanding him and knowing him better without trying to push him to be someone that I wanted or do things the way I wanted. In listening to him 
three things happened. One is that I began to actually understand him better. And I began to understand what he couldn't sort out and where he was really stuck and why my answers were not answers for him, right? It also allowed me to see myself more clearly and my own difficulty with love. And this was pushing me to also see me better and how he experienced me. And then third, it helped him to have me listening. It actually was helping him sort out his own mind, to sort out his own thinking and ultimately be more receptive to me. But anything I then was saying was actually anchored in what was real and might be helpful, right? And so um, children, of course, are different in our sense of responsibility than spouses are or a neighbor is or a ward member is. But I think that so much holds true in these relationships. That is, what can I learn from this person? Why do they believe or disbelieve as they do? How does their world in fact make sense to them? Why does my spouse, child, friend who disagrees with me, what do they understand about me or my beliefs that I prefer not to see, right? So the messenger is often the one that disagrees with us. They can often see things that we can't yet see about ourselves. I've told the story before, I'll just tell it quickly because it's kind of funny. But when my daughter was about seven years old, six years old, she would whine a lot. And go, I want this, I want that. And so I was, I said, you know what it's like sometimes Jane is like, you know, this is how you ask for milk or whatever. I want this. And so I sort of was imitating her. And, and then she laughed. She thought that was kind of funny for me to act, you know, like a whining six-year-old. And then she says, okay, now I'll be you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, wait. <laughs> so she says, say you want milk. So I said, I want some milk. And then she's like coloring and she's like, okay, just keep coloring. <laughs> just a minute. So she's like ignoring me while she's coloring. And I'm like, oh, gee, okay, that's, she's telling me, wait, good way to get milk is you whine, mom. <laughs> Might get your attention then. But she was showing me my part in the problem. She was showing me something about myself I couldn't see when I could only see her behavior, right? And so, so often in our conflicts resides information we need, right? I think it was Carl Jung who said something like, the information we most need resides in places we least want to look, right? That where minds are pushing us away from, but will help us raise our level of intelligence up and have the understanding and the compassion that we need. So, so it's stressful because it means allowing often our deeply held positions, even about ourselves, to be held up to the light of another's perspective. Like, ugh, okay, who wants that? This doesn't mean that we must come to the same conclusion or even believe that their choices, if different than ours, are best or right, but it helps us out of our dismissiveness to, um, to really understand another more clearly. It helps us to love each other, to have more compassion for each other. I can see, given your experience, why you might think that. 
why it would make sense to do that, right? Because so often if we were in the other person's shoes, living the same experiences, we would very likely be doing something very similar to them. And it's really easy to just judge each other and categorize rather than to really have the compassion of, our, of understanding one another in all of our diversity and difference. Um, the other thing is if you really understand one, someone else, they're much more open to your point of view because they feel understood, because they feel like if they have an opinion, it might be one that's actually anchored in what I'm saying, but also this person listening cares about me. I remember I taught a lesson in Relief Society once on listening in my ward. And when I asked people, you know, why listening was so important, I can't remember how I asked the question exactly, but what kept coming back was people saying, when I feel listened to, I feel loved. I feel cared about. Like someone's willing to take the time to actually understand who I am and why I think as I do. Um, and so it brings down defensiveness. It opens up understanding and it allows both people to grow in their honest understanding of one another, but also to grow into wiser people. It takes a ton of courage to seek to solve problems by looking for what you don't yet understand about your role in it and settling down while you're getting disorganized, right? Because as we start to feel a threat, we can easily go into defensiveness and shutting down the messenger or explaining why we're right. But the real courage, the real heroism often in just settling down enough to really understand. Um, okay, so courageously look for where the other person is right, where they're right in their point of view, where they're right about you. This kind builds honest bridges, right? Honest peace. Sometimes we think that peace or Zion or being one is just like pretend that everybody's happy with each other when there's all kinds of anger and frustration and you can't force peace, right? Peace happens through building bridges through honest understanding, through putting our own egos aside enough to understand another person and then be understood. Um, let me just end this portion and then I'm gonna answer some of the other questions that came in, but um, let me just talk a little bit about my mother who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, particularly in this way. My mother always made the relationships with her children and other people more important than ideology. She just was very good at it. And she was able to do two things together, which is know and love her children and other people. She had tremendous range. She has a tremendous range of friends, right? People that politically are different from her, religiously are different from her. Um, and so she has this ability to have a quiet, meaningful faith that anchors her in a very real faith, right? Uh, a real relationship with God, a real sense of, of feeling accountable to God and that relationship and loving deeply the people around her and respecting them. Several of her kids have left the church, but they have never felt, and I know this is true from talking to them, they have never felt less in her eyes for it. No one's ever felt dismissed or avoided or 
condescended to or ensigns being left on their coffee table. She's not trying to get them to be like her. She has been very able to understand and offer respect and trust in her kids' ability to discern and to sort out their relationship to right and wrong and to God while continuing to love them. And what that's really done is because her kids feel loved and respected, they are deeply loving and respectful of her faith, the ones that are no longer participate. And none of my siblings have let go of their faith really, right? That is to say, because they've been loved through it, they've all held on to the foundational pieces in their lives. And they are, you know, she's not made it so that faith is more important than her love for them. So my, I hope to be like my mom in this way. I hope to keep growing to be like her in this way. And um, my hope and prayer is that we can all have the courage to seek to understand one another, even people that we just think it's impossible to do that with, but to understand who they are, how they think in a marriage, to uh, th those conflicts that happen over and over and over. What is the information I don't understand about myself in this conflict? What's the thing my spouse keeps telling me about me that I always dismiss? Where do I know they're right about me? Right? What do I know they're actually getting right that I need to deal with more? I think this is the process of love developing our capacity to build meaningful unity with each other, to build meaningful wisdom and to become a stronger couple, a stronger family and a stronger church community. So I pray for that courage in all of us. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. So I'm going to just ask some, I know Jennifer has probably already dressed, addressed many of the questions that came in, but we have some other specific ones that might be helpful. Um, I have asked my spouse for many years that we always work together on financial items. How can I foster partnership when conversation about big ticket items like finances can be such a dead end? My husband is a kind person who prefers to work alone. I need real teamwork to feel like our partnership is worth eternity. Okay, good. That's a great um, real life challenge around this principle. So uh, how to say, it? we can't, the, the tricky thing about agency and love is I, I love both ideas as it applies to myself. <laughs> it gets trickier when it's allowing other people to have true agency. Like people, you can't make your spouse love you. You can't make your spouse choose you. You can't make them be fair, okay? But you can look at your own participation in a problematic dynamic by seeking to understand, right? And so a lot of times we're so aware of what they're doing that's problematic and we're right, okay? But often they have information played out either through their behavior or through what they say to us that is a part of the problem. So I might approach this by going to my spouse and saying, I'm trying to better understand this, you know, and can you talk to me more about how you see this? Now, they're going to say things you don't want to hear and that are going to be dead wrong. 
and that are off and self-justifying perhaps because maybe being collaborative around finances is stretching your husband in a way he doesn't want to be stretched, okay? But still go in to understand first. And it's a real desire to understand, like, is there, why do you prefer to do it alone? Why do you prefer to do it alone even when you know it distresses me so much, right? Is there something about me that makes it easy to not do it with me? Is it that I'm too rigid? Is it that you don't want me to spend money the places I wanna spend it? Is it that, you know, but it's really trying to understand why the world makes sense to your spouse to do precisely what he's doing. That doesn't make it right, but it allows you to understand what the actual problem is between you and what your role is in it, if any, right? And that ability to actually understand, first of all, it takes the defensiveness down. It drives more self-awareness of the person that's speaking, but it also opens you up to say like, I can see why that, I can see why, you know, say that they're saying, it's hard to do finances with you because you don't want me to have any freedom around the finances. And so I just don't want to feel controlled. Okay. Now, what if they say that and you're like, I'm not that controlling. What are they talking about? I'm not controlling. I'm just making up the story. I have no idea. But rather than I'm not controlling, what are you talking about? I'm not controlling. I'm just trying to keep us solvent. That's all. Okay. Very tempting to go there, but you will be richly rewarded if you don't go there and you stay and say, what do you mean? I don't think of myself as controlling. What do you mean by that? In what way? And they'll say, well, I just feel like if we did things your way, we'd live like under a bridge and we would have, you know, and we just would have nothing. And you're like, it's ridiculous. I'm not, like, I'm not trying. And, but, but just keep looking for where they're right about you. Look for what they're pointing towards that as truthful. Now you may still feel like, well, it's justified. I don't want us to spend too much money. But to think about, okay, why does it matter so much to you to have the sense of freedom? I want so much to just save. I don't even know if the person asking this question is the saver, okay? But there's often this tension between savers and spenders that's around the question of freedom and security, right? Talk to me about that. Why do you fear so much feeling constrained? Because I grew up, I had no money. I never could spend anything. I don't wanna feel, I work hard. I wanna be able to buy things I want. And, that makes sense to me. I can understand that. You can still be understood. Say, it's hard for me because I feel like that we're so have opposite goals and we keep working against each other. So you can be understood then. I don't know if there's a way for us to help both of us around this, a place for you to feel free and a way for me to feel more secure. Is there some way we can do that? But see, it gets facilitated by bringing more information onto the table. And you do that by listening and not just fighting your same fight. If you're having the same, you're saying the same things, thinking it's gonna work this time, right? That's, what do they call that? The definition of insanity. <laughs> Very tempting to do it, but it's not gonna get you anywhere. And a lot of us wanna feel right more than we wanna solve things. And so we have to really watch that in ourselves. Okay, question number two. One of Christ's titles is peacemaker. What is the difference between being a peacemaker and a people pleaser? I find myself deep in people pleasing because I think it's being a peacemaker. People pleasing feels terrible. 
what is a good way of discerning the difference? Great, great question. So we didn't talk about people pleasing as tonight much, but what I think of people pleasing is, is that, you know, again, natural man is kind of managing, I'll try to keep this as brief as I can, but it's managing our ego needs, right? That's, we are born into this kind of very egocentric state. We literally have the feeling that the world revolves around us. As we grow in our moral and cognitive reasoning abilities, we start understanding we're not the epicenter and there's actually other people and we have impact on other people and so on. But to manage our sense of who we are, right? It starts out in a highly dependent state. We, there's no other option. We don't know who we are except how other people relate to us, what they tell us about who we are. And so a lot of times if we grow up in families where we learn that pleasing our parents or keeping them happy with us, this is one way it can happen. And, or if you're a highly anxious person, you will often be trying to comply with the pressures around you as a way to try and get more control. There's a lot of reasons why we people please, but the primary reason is we're trying to get the world or other people that matter to us to think we are okay, to have them be happy with us so we can be happy with us. And that's a very um, understandable psychological dependency. We all have it on some level, right? But the more we grow into more, uh, it's what I call sometimes relational autonomy. So what I mean by it is more ability to kind of know who we are and handle our sense of self while in meaningful connection with other people. Okay. Um, I explain all this in, on other podcasts and stuff if you want to understand that better. But, but that's this ability to just handle a self-knowledge without needing people to reinforce us, right? Christ was doing that all the time. Christ could handle people being unhappy with him, people vilifying him without getting hateful because he had this ability to hold a sense of who he was. And the more deeply we can do that, the more able we are to be a peacemaker, not a pleaser. A pleaser is saying, be happy with me. It, it has an egocentrism in it, okay? And it, because it's, it's about trying to not make waves and in particular make waves with other people focused on us. Peacemaker is trying to build bridges. A peacemaker is actually able to tolerate understanding another person because they can hold on to who they are. Really good listeners are able to hold on to who they are and what really matters, right? to get clear about what their job is, right? To get clear about who they are and who they are not. That's what allows them to fully know another person's experience because they aren't afraid they'll have to just say they agree with it or fold into it. And they know that they will discern what they believe is really truthful and right in what the other person said out of a real knowledge, but not out of a need to reinforce their ego. So peacemakers are actually really strong people. They're solid in their sense of self. They have a deep morality. They know that they matter. They know others matter just as much. And so they're in a position 
to really do things that create more understanding, more wisdom, more, more real peace within a family because everyone in that family matters and they can facilitate those deeper truths and deeper understanding. But that's not out of keeping people happy with you. In fact, sometimes the way you build real peace sometimes is to say the things that need to be said that are hard to say. Sometimes it's speaking up really honestly in a marriage and naming a really hard thing that uh, you would rather not say because it's disruptive to the way the relationship has kind of been functioning, but it's keeping the relationship weak, right? Or loving an adolescent is often to disappoint them or to say or do things they don't like. If you need your adolescent to be happy with you at all times, you will not do right by your adolescent, right? So love is often about not pleasing. What is the best way to cope with a spouse who is seeking approval from parents? The parent always takes priority even over a marriage relationship. Yeah, this might be one of those perfect times to speak truthfully. <laughs> Now you need to look at like, is that really what's going on? Or am I just selfish and competitive? Or am I just kind of making it so that my spouse can't have a relationship with their family because I'm taking it all too personally? Or is this really where the loyalty is very much in this kind of parent-child enmeshment? And often it is. I mean, oftentimes parents have a very hard time um, saying, really letting their children go. Marriage is a wonderful time when your child's getting married, but there's often a grief in it that we don't really name as openly of the parent who's really letting their child leave and cleave, that they're, they have loved their way out of a job in a sense. And so that can be hard. And sometimes when parents can't do that or won't do that, they can try to keep the loyalty of the child, keep pressure them to come for Christmas. And I can't believe you're not coming, you know, and do all these things that kind of exploit the child's native need or desire for their parent to be happy with them. And so they can really hijack a marriage in the name of love. And so the spouse on the outside of that collusion is in a tough spot. And so, you know, obviously if you're going to a good counselor or third party that can see it, can name it and identify and help the marriage to understand what's happening and how much it's interfering with really creating a boundary, a sacred boundary around a marriage. But in the absence of that, you know, it's probably time to speak honestly. And we could have another one of these next year on how to speak in a way to be heard and to be understood, which comes after hearing, after listening. But, but to talk in a way not to accuse, not to take down, not to, un, you know, spill all of your hostility onto your spouse, whose loyalty seems to be to his mother, okay? but instead to say, to talk in a way to solve it. We have a real problem. It's a problem you don't wanna see, but it's a problem I see all the time and it's killing our marriage. And I need you to deal with it if we are going to make it 
as a couple, if we are going to thrive as a couple, because right now it's a threesome and I've never wanted a threesome, okay? <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> okay. What do I tell a child who identifies with the LGBTQ community about the church's position on gay people and how they will be treated if they continue to attend church? Okay, what do I tell a child? Um, well, I will tell you what I would tell a child, but I, you may decide or for yourself that you'd say something different. But um, if I had a, if my child were gay and I knew this was not a fad or, you know, they're just trying on an identity or something like that, which I think is seldom the case, but um, I would say that you are how God made you and I love you and I choose you and you have nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, I would be talking to them about who they are and um, the importance of them holding the dignity of who they are and creating loving, committed, meaningful relationships um, out of that self-acceptance. And I would say, don't give too much of your strength away to people who don't yet understand. And that the church is growing, it's an evolving reality. It's, the world has changed quickly. It, there is a lot of growing pains in the church and be your strong self, be at peace with God and be true to who you are and it's okay. Um, and you can decide what's right for you to do. Some people decide they can't stay, some find a way to stay and to hold who they are. Um, but I would just name the challenge that's there and help them hold onto their dignity and hopefully communicate the love of God that I know is there for them. How can I not feel marginalized as a woman in the church? Well, it's actually kind of similar. Um, I remember sometimes people would say what I'm about to say and I would get upset by it because, <laughs> because I felt like it was a little bit dismissive. Um, I think there are plenty of messages, right? Um, about women being second class. I mean, today I just was uh, with a friend of ours who's here. Uh, we went into the Beehive House and we were learning about Brigham Young's, you know, 56 wives. And she's looking at me like, <laughs> are you guys nuts? <laughs> so she's not LDS. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, as a child, grew up learning these kinds of things and I knew God loved me. I could feel that God loved me. I knew that I mattered. I also knew that there was some way in which I felt I was getting the message that I was second class. I didn't, I remember saying, I don't know if I said, it, I remember thinking anyway, as a child that our family must be very special because we had, well, my dad was like a stake leader and we had five boys. And so I thought that makes us like five priesthood holders. <laughs> It's like so bad, but I, I thought that's kind of, that's how I was internalizing that message. And so I knew I was loved, but I was loved just a little bit less. I was just down a step. And so that's, 
really why I did a lot of the work that I did in my dissertation research. And it was because I, I cared about this fact that I could feel some of that second class, class status and it felt wrong to me. And it didn't feel like the God that I knew. And, um, and I think for me, um, you know, I just kept pursuing the God I knew and really just in my relationship with God came to a clarity that I was beloved, I was mattered, I was equal, and that to stand up for the good and to do good and that no, I was not going to find an organization or a reality that was just going to reinforce me. I wanted it. It's not like I needed to like the invalidation or the messages that I thought were off, but that I was going to wait forever if I was going to wait for someone to just hand that to me. And I needed to know what I knew and to believe in my worth as a human being, as a woman, and go roll up my sleeves and do good and not wait for others to make it okay. And, you know, as President Nelson has said, we need strong women. Desperately we do. And by strength, it's like, I know I'm okay. I know who I am and I'm gonna do good in the world and create a better place, collaborate, hold my value, work in partnership with men, other people, deal with people's differences, but stay in there and stay unapologetic for what I know, for my wisdom, for my strength, for my clarity, and keep solving problems together. Because then you don't need someone else. You, don't, you already know you're okay. And it doesn't mean you need to like some of the systemic problems we may have, but you can hold your own and do good anyway. She's asking about what about estrangement, like the ideas of listening to understand aren't even possible because they aren't open to having any communication with me. And it's just painful because there's nothing I can do about it. This is the question I would ask myself. Is there anything that I need to clean up about my part in the estrangement? Is there any, you know, besides gifts or is there anything I need to acknowledge or recognize, which is not the same thing as saying, if you do it, she will open up. But is there any part in this that I play in terms of like something I can acknowledge or recognize with her? If I have already done all that and it's not grown into anything else, she just loves to hate me and she's kind of solving something through that, then I probably would let it go. You can pray for her, you can hope for her well-being, but I would probably stop trying to get her to open up to you. You might say, listen, I love you. I will always want to be back in connection with you. Um, and so I'm here when you want. But I would, the, the reason is because, the reason I'm saying it like that is because, do, do you think she likes ignoring you or do you think she receives it as still like something that matters to her but she just can't yet respond? So I would just think about that and, and maybe ask your sibling, you know, like if he has a point of view about it, like, is she happy to have you trying and her ignore? Or do you think it does mean something to her? And then she's just not ready. Then I would probably not take it too personally and just keep 
saying, I love you. And I do want a good relationship with you at some point, if it's at all possible. And I'm thinking of you today and just love her and know that it's all you can do and not waiting for her reciprocity to validate you investing in her. Yeah. But any of these things are certainly not guarantees. Again, it comes back to, we can do the right thing and still face disappointment. We can love and face ourselves and still have someone that matters deeply to us not try or not care or not pick up their half, right? And that's a hard part of life. It's the control we don't have often, but you just want to know you're not using your self-deception to keep a problem going. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.